Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I am Ren, and I am definitely a country mouse. I'm Brandon, and I is my only other option a city mouse. Doesn't have to be a mouse at all. And I'm probably a city cat. You could be a city cat. City cricket. Uh, nope. Cat. <laughs> what? Or a city, I was going to say like a city snake or something, but I don't that really think that's a Disney thing. Disney song is blatantly incorrect. So <laughs> some people want to be cats, that would make me crazy. Some folks want to be a cat. So, some, but, some but not all folks want to be a cat. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be rough. <laughs> well, I assume that you know, since the title of the book is in the title of this episode, you know what we're going to talk about. But based on this intro, you probably are very confused. Uh, but yes, yeah, we watched we watched Aristocats. I've never seen that actually. We're now we're now a Disney movie podcast, and we started with like the most forgettable <laughs> one. These are lies. Uh, <laughs> So well, the the thing about it being the most forgettable one might be true. All of that aside, uh, today we are actually going to be talking about the book "The Cricket in Times Square" by George Selden, importantly also illustrated by Garth Williams, and I think this may be the first episode we've done where we've read a book illustrated by Garth Williams. But I do feel like he was like the primary children's book illustrator of most of the things I enjoyed as a child, so he's going to come up a bit. Okay. I don't think I ever internalized, like, who was the illustrator of any given thing that I read as a kid. Oh, um, well, let's take a, a brief segue into okay. Garth Williams, then. Obviously. Um, he illustrated he illustrated Charlotte's Web. If you, um, if you remember those, those illustrations are amazing. Yeah, like I remember the illustrations. I just don't ever remember like looking at the at the cover or wherever else the information may have been and internalizing the name of the illustrator, just the author. He illustrated the Little House in the Prairie books, which oh, okay. I know you've not read, but uh, we're gonna I read, we're gonna change I think I read that. The first one. We're gonna change that at some point. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, the the list is is fairly significant. He has a very distinct style, which I, I really enjoy. So, this is also an interesting episode. I, I think will be an interesting episode because Brandon and I have read two different versions of this book. So, depending on which version of this book you're reading, there may or may not be content warnings. Yeah. I did think it was, it was weird that uh, Hayden Christensen was in this. I assume he was added. <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, they they took out all of the little, you know, who's and yeah, Archer's accent. Anyway, I think we're making different Star Wars jokes. Actually, mm-hmm. we've gotten a little lost here. We it's are. okay. So I read an older version of the book in twenty twenty two. The publisher released a book that has been. Uh, modified and revised with a new forward written by Stacy Lee, who is a uh, also a children's book writer. 
of uh, Asian descent. And she was brought in because the original, written in 1960, has some problematic Chinese stereotypes. So if you're reading the older version, content warning for very dated Chinese stereotypes. If you are reading the newer version, which says on the cover, uh, revised with a new forward by Stacey Lee, mm -hmm. those parts of the book have been rewritten. So I'm actually very curious to go and read those two chapters because I didn't, I didn't end up having time to go like get the Kindle copy or whatever and, and, and read those chapters. But I did have Brandon forward me the forward so that I would know exactly what, you know, her mindset was in making the changes. And I think it was a pretty good call uh, because as uh, Stacey Lee explained in the forward, this was one of the first books she ever read as a kid where there was any uh, Chinese immigrant representation. And she just sort of internalized the stereotypes and accepted them and didn't think to, you know, question why they were there until later, and was, you know, given the opportunity to go in and fix that. So we have a little bit of a Hardy Boys situation with this book, which, you know, there's people that complain, and I definitely saw some complaints about revising books and how, you know, whether or not that's a good thing or not. But I do think, in this case, it's a good thing doesn't hurt anyone to like not have those things anymore in it you're not you're not preserving any epic grant history by keeping the awful stereotypes in and that that explains why those chapters were were much more reasonable than i expected when i got to them <laughs> i was like oh no i can't imagine that this character named mr fong is going to be portrayed you know responsibly in the Nothing jumped out. It's like, oh, explains that. I'm dying to read those chapters now. But if if you've not read this book, you may be wondering why, in a book called The Cricket in Times Square, we're talking a lot about Chinese stereotypes. And that is because The Cricket in Times Square tells the story of Chester Cricket, who is originally from Connecticut, who finds himself accidentally lost in the Times Square subway station after going into a little bit of a food coma at a picnic in the country. He is found by Mario, a young Italian boy whose parents run a newsstand in the station. Mario then seeks the advice of Mr. Fong, a uh, Asian immigrant or a Chinese immigrant who runs a curiosity shop in Chinatown to learn a little bit more about Cricket's diets and what sort of you know enclosure he should be kept in and that sort of thing. Essentially, he's kind of a troublesome pet. For a few chapters, he accidentally sleepwalks and eats some of the money out of the cash register. He also, you know, kind of accidentally starts a fire in the newsstand and causes them some monetary damage and such. And it's not until the family realizes that he can replicate perfectly a bunch of classical music with his, you know, cricket, cricket wings and, uh, that attracts some crowds and some good tips for a little while and stuff. That, uh... I don't know where I was going with that sentence. And then he gets burnt out on fame. Well, the, the mother is going to make Mario get rid of Chester Cricket 
for the fire fiasco and the eating of the money until it's revealed that he can perfectly replicate classical music with his wings and that attracts a bunch of crowds and articles and tips and good luck for them for some time until he gets burnt out on fame and his friends uh tucker the mouse and harry the cat who get along and are roommates uh help him get back to connecticut at the end so yeah yeah this was a me selection as you know from the format of this podcast i'm the one that's talking and i can't remember at what age i read this book first but i know that i read it frequently i i think i was very interested in the comparison to the cricket music being like a violin and it definitely sort of sparked this desire in me to learn how to play the violin but i was of course poor and so we could not afford a violin, so that didn't happen. But I, I always wanted to. And, of course, I'm always really a sucker for books that tell the story of animals in the midst of, of humans kind of going about their thing. So This probably is one of the cases in which I don't love the mouse character all that much. I find him to be kind of an abrasive little weirdo who likes to sleep on money. It's very strange. But usually I, li I like the mouse character in things. Tucker Mouse's relationship with money is interesting, considering he's a mouse. Yeah. And I don't know what he's going to do with all of that he's saving. I don't know. Yeah. Like, he's talking... So, yeah, Tucker Mouse is saving all of these, you know, drop coins and things that he finds all over the subway. Or retirement or whatever, but... Yeah. like. This isn't the sort of story where the humans and the animals can I interact with each other through any amount of language. So it's not like he's going to just like plop a couple of dollars up on, you know, the soda pop stand and say, you know, here, I want this. People will scream. Not what's he going to do with the money? I have I have a lot of thoughts and questions about the way that the world of this book works, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves necessarily um so you said you weren't sure when you first read this do you have a sense like is it one that you've reread frequently yeah i mean not recently but i know that i sure i'm going to assume that it was probably because it was a newbury award winner it was probably something that was on one of the book lists of things that we could read for mm. you know read x amount of these newbury books and get a free personal pan pizza sort of thing you know yeah so I assume that's how I read it for the first time. And I know that I, I didn't have my own copy, but I think that I was left in my own devices in libraries and stuff enough that I think that I just read it a lot. <laughs> yeah. When you suggested this book, there was a brief moment when I was like not entirely sure if I'd read it or not. Because in my brain, I, I have frequently gotten this mixed up with uh, The Cricket on the Hearth. The Dickens novella. Oh, which I've never heard of. Uh, which I did at mm. some point, but have no recollection of. I don't like Dickens <laughs> in general. Once I was a couple pages and I was like, no, nah, I, I have, however, seen the uh, mid-90s adaptation Air Bud. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
thought you were going to say the cartoon because there was a cartoon based on this. Oh, yeah. No, and then you, you went in a totally different direction. <laughs> okay, please explain to me how Airbud is a rehash of this. Early in the book, I don't remember exactly what made me think this, but I was like, oh, I wonder if this book is heading in the direction where, like, I think it was probably the first time that, like, really mentioned Chester playing music, which was well before he, like, starts doing it on purpose. And I thought maybe that's where we were headed plot-wise, which just reminded me of Airbud, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cricket that is good at classical music rather than a golden retriever that's good at basketball. But, like, it's, you know, animal is good at thing. Animal gets famous for being good at thing. Attached to a to a young boy character, you know, Airbud. In Airbud, can the dog talk? No. Hmm. I guess he can play basketball. I guess it's similar. And then I was a little disappointed when it wasn't going that direction, and then it did go that direction, right? <laughs> it did kind of pivot very rapidly into that. I think another reason why I was sort of enthralled by it was as a country mouse. I had very little frame of reference for New York City other than, you know, like the Ninja Turtles movie and stuff. And uh, it was a cool little sort of snapshot of what, you know, New York City in the subway uh, was like. Yeah. Which, of course, is why for a really long time I, my idea of what New York City must be like was kind of like, still stuck in the 60s mm-hmm. but it definitely did offer a little bit of a snapshot too into sort of all of the primary characters are human characters are immigrants the mario is a i believe it was implied that he was born here but his parents spoke italian and were definitely you know like fairly recent immigrants to the city that's how that's how i took it um and it sort of gave a little sort of and it gave a little bit of a you know economic portrait of what life was like to be sort of scraping by running a newsstand as an immigrant family which i don't think was the main point but it was i don't know interesting to be exposed to yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's something I would have picked up on if I had read it. I don't think I would have read it that context. It is. Yeah. But that that also sort of like I feel like bolsters my opinion that the edits were a good thing because when when they're writing the Italian family they're not, you know, writing it with like a bad accent and the characters aren't going around saying you know like it's a me mario uh they're just they just sort of you know talk like you know quote unquote normal but in the version the older version the chinese immigrants are definitely written to have like very thick accents and you know speak in that very sort of stilted stereotypical you know movie chinese guy way which i'm i'm sure without offering any examples you could probably picture like bad badly written Chinese dialogue, hopefully, without me needing to yeah, read um, examples. 
That makes sense. I don't recall encountering any of that in the version I read. Yeah. Well, you know, Miss Stacy Lee, like everybody else, Stacy Lee definitely adjusted um, all of that. Yeah. Another thing that she mentioned removing is there's this very awkward extended bowing scene uh, between all of them and it just so knowing what they changed and and all of that it does sort of make it pretty clear you know white immigrants are just written as normal and you know other other sorts of immigrants are written as stereotypes and that was just a very normal thing for these older you know maybe if they had been written with a bunch of like Italian stereotypes it would have felt more even evenly kind of bad but still even but definitely they're just written as you know the fault you know because I know I was really young when I read this for the first time so this is probably one of the first instances where I encountered any you know Chinese American characters mm -hmm. in the book so I mean it's you know, in a way, it's nice that they were included, but in another way, you know, because Stacey Lee said that, you know, she was very happy to have, you know, that representation in something where it was very infrequent. But at the same time, looking back at it as an adult and realizing how problematic it was. But ultimately, this is a book about a cricket, a mouse and a cat who become friends. Yeah. I just... At, at this point in my life, for some reason, I guess I was just way more focused on the human stuff. <laughs> like, oh, what does this have to say about the immigrant experience? It's about a cricket academy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although, I mean, the cricket is an immigrant, too. That is true. I didn't think about that. And, like, I guess in a broader sense, you know, both both Harry Cat and Tucker Mouse are, you know, a product of having to sort of live in the margins of human society. I didn't think a whole lot about this, but may maybe if somebody wanted to really consider the themes there, maybe maybe there's something. Well, there's a little bit of a a theme that I I touched on in a little sidelong comment I made in the synopsis, where in my notes as I was reading this, I wrote. Harry and Tucker are roommates. And I put in quotes. Because Harry and Tucker live in a drain pipe. This mm -hmm. is a cat and a mouse, incidentally. Uh, again, if you've forgotten that detail. And they bicker like an old married couple. And I love that for them. <laughs> but I had been joking about Harry and Tucker being roommates. Until I read more about George Selden. Oh, yeah. Um, Tell us more about George Selden. George Selden. Uh, so, <laughs> no, he was a mouse. Duh. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, we're we're bouncing in our synopsis here, but I I just I'm I've been sort of like, like, vibrating in my chair about this information I uncovered. Um, so this book was written in 1960, like I said, uh, and apparently there are six sequels. I did not know about. I have not read them. Six sequels okay um it won the newbury honor in 1961 which is like i said probably how it found its way into my life 
It was written by George Selden, as I said. Um, he was born in Connecticut, so he is... Maybe he's the cricket. Um, yeah, from Connecticut. I'm not funny today. I'm still sick. It's fine. Um, he was definitely kind of a, you know, semi-privileged white guy. He went to Yale. He uh, was a member of the Elizabethan Club at Yale. Then he proceeded to go to Columbia. Then he studied in Rome on a Fulbright scholarship. He he had a reasonably, you know, good good academic time. Um and he wrote this book sort of on a whim. Uh, his his statement on why he wrote this book was that he was in Times Square and he heard a cricket chirp. And then the whole story just kind of popped into its head popped into his head and he just wrote it all down and you know when you look up george selden on youtube i just you know or, or google or, or wherever i i definitely struggle to find much of a cultural footprint for him there's mm -hmm. very few reviews youtube is blogged with videos of people simply reading the book out loud but there's very few reviews or you know interviews or anything about him and he did die in 1989 so obviously a little early for there to still be sort of video evidence of interviews and that sort of thing but there's just not a lot to be found about you know literary discussion about this book or anything like that where things get interesting though however is that he also wrote things under a pseudonym mm. as terry andrews like a good pseudonym um and what Terry Andrews wrote was a book that actually had a pretty serious cultural footprint in the LGBTQA plus world. He wrote the book The Story of Harold, which I can find a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, which is a story of a bisexual children's book author and his various affairs. And uh, what I was able to find out about this is that it uh, it would seem that it was re not revealed that. Terry Andrews was also George Selden until after his death, because there was an article I read uh, that was written in 2002 that said that it was only revealed very recently that they were the same person. But there, there are several articles to be found online about this, you know, 1974 book about a bisexual man being, you know, one of the first of its kind to just sort of, you know, talk about relationships and and that sort of thing that was moderately popular. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, older queer people, you know, read that and resonated with some of it. And so, so that had a a fairly big splash. Um, it's very hard to find copies of it now, it seems, but there's definitely a lot of people who, who wrote about it. So when I said, Harry and Tucker are roommates in quotes, Harry and Tucker are roommates. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to stereotype like a bisexual author as you know, all of his characters have to be queer, but they they read as like such a queer relationship to me. It's very like Bert and Ernie. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And I love that for them. <laughs> so, yeah. So so finding out that, you know, he wrote under the pseudonym, you know, queer books really thrilled me as you know, somebody who was queer. 
and who really really liked this book. So that that I don't know. That just made me happy. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, I I had also sort of thought about Carrie and Tucker in that context, but figured that I was just being a weird. I call that grasping at gay straws. <laughs> How I felt when I watched the Solo movie and I saw Solo flirting with... Lando? Lando, yeah. Those, oh my gosh. Those aren't straws. Those are, those are definitely on purpose. That's, that's text. That's not something. Fair. Well, I often grasp at gay straws. <laughs> I've done a lot of talking now and I haven't actually asked what you thought about it. Yeah. I skipped all the stuff where I was supposed to ask you things. Sorry. It's fine. Your turn. You're up. I'll shut up. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you would have liked it if you read it when you were a kid? I've thought about this question a bit because I definitely feel like so, you know, I, I find it I find it fine, but it didn't really grab me. Um you know, I kept wanting the story to like feel like it was going somewhere and by the time that it did it was right near the end of the book i'm not sure how much that is just coming at it as an adult versus just like what i look for in stories i don't think i would have liked it a appreciable amount more as a kid but i might be wrong um it uh it reminded me a lot of Charlotte's Web mm. for probably obvious reasons, but I just I, I I've always connected a lot with Charlotte's Web. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think Charlotte's Web was longer. I think that's true. This was a very short book, but also I feel like in contrast to Charlotte's Web, his, Chester's relationship with Mario is very distant. Mario just kind of, you know, puts him in his cage and leaves him in the newsstand and goes home at night. And they don't really, you know, there's some cute little scenes where, like, they play, like, a little cricket fetch and stuff. But honestly, like, cricket is so small. Yeah. I don't see it as being, like, a very good pet. Yeah, I felt bad for Chester a lot. I think this is something that I've, I've sort of, as I've gotten older, become less and less, like, enamored about pets and in particular like pets that people basically like keep in cages all the time or whatever right yeah so there's like i don't think i would have had that criticism as a kid but like i'm even like i i feel bad about keeping my dog in the apartment i live in it's perfectly comfortable, and I know she's fine, and I take her outside, and we walk, and she goes to sniff and everything, but, like, I, I don't know. There's still some part of me that sort of feels like I'm doing something wrong. Uh, and so the notion of just Chester being locked in a little cage for long periods uh, struck me as uh, off-putting in a way that I think is relatively recent for me. Not Not to a degree that I disliked the book over it. Because I know that's not how it was supposed to be taken. There was just this brief moment of existential horror where if we assume Cricket has approximately human intelligence as he seems to in this world, uh, but has to live in a tiny cage all the time, or at least all day, until Tucker comes and lets him out. Uh, I don't know. There was a little bit of a, like, 
existential dread. <laughs> I mean, he does. So in a, in a very gross scene, which made me uncomfortable as someone who is, you know, vaguely germaphobic. Um, when Mario hears the cricket chirping and goes to rescue him, he fishes him out of subway garbage. He just like picks him up off of gross subway floor nastiness. And I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't bother. Well, I have a problem. <laughs> no, that was really gross. So he did rescue him. He did do a good thing because he was stuck under all this subway trash. And he was lost and confused. You know, he made an effort to make sure he gave him the right food. Because at first he was just, like, feeding him chunks of liverwurst. Yeah, just whatever uh, he liked. I don't even know what that is. Do you know what that is? Because I wrote a note. Google what liverwurst is. Um, I believe it is some kind of uh, sausage thing. I'm not positive. Liverwurst. Liver sausage. It just looks like bologna. Gross. All right. Sometimes I get really hung up on... When I'm when I'm reading something and I see the name of a food that I am just not familiar with, that happened for me when I was reading Narnia and they kept talking about Turkish delight and I was just oh like, yeah, what is Turkish delight? Tell me. I, it was give always me, mystified. Give me any more context as to what Turkish what delight Turkish is. Delight was. No. I still. I'm gonna Google it. I know that I googled it at one point, like once, once the internet was more available to me. <laughs> there, there was like a. A large number of things that I researched. Turkish delight is a family of a family of confections based on gel of starch and sugar. Okay, like a sugary jelly it has like a powder on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a, a relatively rigid consistency. Like it's not, it's not like jam. Yeah, they're cut into squares. Yeah. It's definitely not the color I expected it, it was going to be. I think it can be a lot of it looks. I've got red, orange, yellow here. In my head when I was reading it, I guess, I, I think I just sort of like transported it, transplanted it. I don't know. Turned it into just like a toffee. Mm -hmm. So in my head, it was just like brown. Interesting. <laughs> not really. <laughs> but yeah. I kind of, I think the thing, the thing that I found I was missing was like the sense of the story going someplace, which is provided somewhat in like Charlotte's Web because you have the, you know, various intervals of like Charlotte weaving a new web with a new message and stuff. And it's kind of like a thing that is happening throughout. Yeah. And there's that sense of, of danger yeah. in Charlotte's Web where you know what you know what the threat is. When I, when I was reading this, I kept coming up to a new problem and being like, oh, this is what the threat is. Like when he ate the money and then that was resolved very quickly. And then, oh, this is what the threat is, the fire. And that was resolved very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of like, like, like he didn't, Shatter didn't express any real urgency about going back to Connecticut early on. So like my initial thought was, oh, maybe it's about them trying to get him back to Connecticut. That's an adventure. But that's not the case. Now, like I said, I I also early on was like, oh, now he's going to start playing music that crickets don't normally pay attention to, and everybody's going to be like, wow, this cricket, check him out. And then it wasn't that until like very late in the book for about a chapter. Yeah, yeah, it just it just kind of felt like the front two thirds of the book were 
largely just kind of like a series of dinner parties <laughs> where Chester and Tucker and Harry would talk about stuff. That is true. And, and I think I found this interesting uh, by comparison to the mouse on the motorcycle as well because of the way that the animal's relationship with the human world is structured. Because as you said, uh, there's no indication that they can talk to people for one mm-hmm. thing. Granted, they don't try, but but I assume we're meant to uh, understand that they can't, or they wouldn't be able to. Uh, understand. But also, the uh, the animals in this seem to be very aware of how the human world works, even to the degree of things that like I couldn't figure out why they would possibly know, like Tucker having a retirement fund and stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, you know, as compared to the mouse and the motorcycle, where like those mice, they think the motel is the world. I mean, they know there's something outside, right? But like it's dangerous. They don't literally think the motel is the world, but their perspective was was constructed very much in the context of like what interactions they had had and 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 what experiences with humans were filtered through these fact that they lived in a motel yeah there was definitely a lot of like fear with those mice yeah whereas here chester and tucker and harry just kind of know what classical music is and what like banks are and currency and all of these other things in a way that i think for me took away some of the charm of animal characters yeah that's a good point because it just frequently didn't feel like they were yeah, I mean, some of that could probably be chalked up to Tucker and Harry being city-wise city creatures. Yeah. And Chester is a bumpkin who doesn't understand all this stuff. But I I still feel like if you were to write this sort of scenario from the perspective of in the way that the mouse and the motorcycle was written, they would have a whole bunch of like incorrect thoughts about why things work certain ways just based on their perspective. Yeah. Well, and even a little more interesting. Chester even knew a lot about when he got there already. And and the book says that it's because um, I think a bird had told him at some point, like a bird he knew. Pesky bird. Who who would spend some time in Connecticut. was like, wow, New York City. Let me tell you about it. New York City. So like that does establish how and why Chester would know some of these things. And and, yeah, Tucker and Harry would pick it up that they lived there. But um, felt very much more complete. Actually, the um, by far the parts that I liked best were the two chapters involving uh, Mr. Fong. <laughs> I was just suddenly like, oh wow, these are these are like pretty good chapters that I, I'm compelled by. This is like carrying me forward. I like how this is going. Not because well, I, I can I, link you to Stacey Lee's other work because <laughs> those two chapters were like completely rewritten by her. Yeah. I guess that maybe maybe things make sense now. Uh, and it's not because they necessarily added like a lot of plot propulsion because the, the first time uh, Mario's just there to look for a cricket cage because he knows he knows generally that people in Chinatown have cricket cages, um, though he doesn't really know the context as far as I can tell uh, for why that's a, a cultural thing. But... Um, and then the second time, he... Why did he go back? Because he wasn't eating well. Oh, that's he right. he wanted to know what 
what the right food for a cricket was. Yeah. And um in that time, I don't know. I'll, I'll just I'll just say what happens and you can tell me yeah, if it's like the same functional situation just rewritten, but but when Mario goes that time, Mr. Fong is having dinner with his brother who's a professor of some kind. Oh. Um, and and they actually talk a fair amount. Well, they invite Mario in, and Mario eats, and so there's some talk about like the the Chinese cuisine, and Mario hasn't tried very much Chinese food, um, so he's kind of like getting to experience some of this, uh, and they they talk more about crickets and and things and like some Chinese cultural elements are sort of germane, and for me like. One of the things I like most in books, uh, and certainly books like this, I guess, are are those opportunities to have like windows onto the culture and context of the characters, whether they're like real cultures or fictional cultures in the case of fantasy and stuff. And so those chapters I was super into. So yeah, maybe I just maybe I just need to check out Stacy Lee. Okay, so first off, he's not his brother in in the original version. He just says that he's an old friend. Can the brother speak English? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The old friend character who is not even named can't speak English. And so the whole discussion is happening as a translation between Mr. Fong and Mario and this other dude. When Mr. Fong brings Mario into the back. He's like, this is my older brother. So he's also Mr. Fong, but his mm. students call him Professor. And so for the rest of the chapter, he's called the Professor. So that you know, so it's not just like two separate Mr. Fongs. Um, but that's the rationale for why the character is just referred to by the Professor. And and yeah, he, he speaks... He speaks perfect English. He, in fact, is the source of a lot of the uh, further information about what crickets eat and stuff like that. Wow, yeah, he's very cartoony. He doesn't speak English. He just kind of, like, is depicted as excitably muttering a language that Mario doesn't understand and kind of, like, jumping around and being a stereotype. Oh, wow, yeah, no, that is not remotely the same. He he comes he comes off as I mean he does directly speak to Mario frequently. And like while Mr. Fong is there and present and kind of obviously like the one who's met Mario before and gave him the cage and has some things to say about crickets, the professor is actually the source of a lot of further information and he delivers it largely in like a way that he's he seems actually engaged in teaching Mario about like he asks hmm. Mario questions, like, "Do you know how to use chopsticks? Have you had uh, such and such a thing? Be careful, uh, be careful with that. It's hot. You know, it's just came out of the wok, etc." Like, uh, and, and I guess ha- having established that he is a professor of something, I don't recall it saying what, but but he is a teacher of some kind. Like, he definitely seems like a teacher. You know, hmm. that's kind of how he relates to Mario and. And he does, he and Mr. Fogg have a little bit of interplay as well, where they kind of, like, like the professor contradicts Mr. Fogg's assessment of what kind of cricket Chester is. 
Oh, they don't even get into that. Because there's there's so many different kinds of cricket. Yeah. There are some very cute ones. Yeah. Well, none of them. None of them are bad. Because okay, again, in, in in the edition I read, which was the Kindle edition that I bought like a week ago, for the revised. Initially, Mr. Fong says that Chester is a blackhead general in the first chapter where he appears when when Mario gets the cricket cage, and then when Mario comes later and has dinner with the, these two, the professor is like. Uh, had clearly heard the story for one thing about the weird Italian kid who came looking for a cricket cage and he was like I thought you said this cricket was a blackhead general that's clearly a, a little something poet related Chester liked the assessment because it was more artsy I guess mm-hmm. uh, or that's cute it, sounded, it, it, struck it, I, it struck Chester that it sounded more appropriate to him than blackhead general which sounded you know Aggressive yeah. and military, which is not who Chester is. I'm curious. I'm curious if the first chapter where he gets the cage, uh, Mr. Fong tells him the story of the first cricket. I don't recall encountering that story in this. Okay. Yeah, there's like a very like Chinese fable little tale that he says in broken English about the first cricket, but it's uh, yeah. I was curious if that was taken out. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he said anything about that. Uh, I I don't really. I'm just skimming the chapter again. He really just talks about what blackhead generals are like, mm. uh, which is to say they they like win fights, <laughs> and he doesn't say anything about like the. I don't think anything in the book really specifies the. Um, the Chinese context for crickets and cricket cages and what they are, are meant to be about. Um, hmm. Though I might just be forgetting because I've I've encountered that elsewhere. So I I am more familiar with that media. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like the changes were definitely for the. <laughs> I feel like the book as it is in the version that I read doesn't have a ton that I feel like it would bring to more modern kids. But I feel like the changes make it something that I I would actually say to like a modern kid. This is something you should read. It may it may spark an interest in music. It may spark an interest in you know immigrant culture. I don't know. Yeah. Something. I I really I really just ultimately wished the music part was like a bigger part of the story. I I feel like the notion of Chester playing music for people and getting that little bit of fame could could have sustained like the book and not a chapter or two at the end. Yeah. Uh, and I just don't feel like there's like a ton prior to that point that is like super compelling besides the the chapters with Mr. Fong. And so, like, that's kind of, yeah, I I agree that there's some stuff to potentially be gained, though, you know, in the case of the cultural elements, I, I, I'm, I'm like, maybe, maybe go, maybe instead go find some books written by Chinese American or Asian American authors, um, rather than a book revised by one. Yeah. And the same might be true of the music element. I can't think of, like, 
a counterexample for a, a a better way to sort of give access to something like the music stuff uh, dealt with elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think I would have found it per perfectly okay if I had read it as a kid. I don't find it offensive. It sounds like if I had read it, much less favorable from from what I'm saying. But the the revised version, I, I don't. I, I find it inoffensive. Um, it's fine. It's cute. I'm sure some people maybe look slightly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's. I'm just gonna pivot with our our discussion question, mm -hmm. which is just very silly. But uh, if you were a cricket who was lost, you found yourself in, you know, the subway station, and you had access to Grand Central Station, which is where you know Chester went back to Connecticut from. Where would you go? Hmm. Am I from Connecticut in this context? No, you can be from wherever you want. I'd go to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh? Yeah. Pittsburgh. I like Pittsburgh. Oh. The Carnegie Museum has a uh, pretty decent dinosaur collection, actually. Would you go live in the museum? Sure. And now this is a uh, yeah. mixed-up files crossover. It's the cricket version of <laughs> Oh, yeah. That was, a, that was another note I had, was that I feel like I should have paired this with mixed-up files. Yeah, just so we had a, had a pair of... Uh, People get New lost York. in New York. Yeah. It's around the same time period, too. Yeah. I don't think I'd go to Connecticut. Connecticut's pretty enough, but yeah. I definitely wouldn't want to live in the dingy city, though. I don't know. Connecticut might be a good answer. What about Maine? You can't get to Maine from Grand Central Station. Haven't you ever heard you can't get there from here? Oh, oh yeah. The, the, that old axiom, you can't get to Maine from Grand Central Station. Wait, have you really never heard the phrase "you can't get there from here"? Like in some kind of more specific context, no. Like, like as an idiom. Mm, <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it an idiom. I mean, it sounds like oh, it sounds so like what it means. No, that's it's a main saying. I'm sure people have said you can't get there from here to me in many contexts when I was in a place and I wanted to be in a different place and I couldn't get there from where I was. Well. Derek will appreciate what I said. Okay. That's good. Uh, tell us in the comments if you also appreciate what Rin said. Well, Derek's also from Maine. No, no, I understand. I was, I was, I was saying it to the list in case we have any Maine listeners. Oh, that's good. Granted, I don't think it just, podcast it episodes have, have comments. Large population. Yeah, I don't think we have a comment section. I mean, we have social media. Yeah. Yeah. So how many uh, peaches we're looking at here? Yeah, that's what I was just about to try to pivot to. Um, it's I really feel like I need to start keeping a keeping a spreadsheet of what I've rated things before. Me also. Because now I'm like, well, if I rate this like a two point five, is that is that making it like better or worse than you know something I rated before? I'm gonna give it a two point five. It was fine enough it, it didn't grab me enough for me to read it in one sitting mm -hmm. which it's such a short little book i could have easily read it in one sitting but i kind of got bored several times and had to go like do something else yeah so that's that's where i am with it. 
I think I think I'm at a two, and that's mostly because I think that's what I gave um, Hardy Boys. Mm. Because I feel like my my reading experience was very similar, where like for most of it, I was just kind of bored, and then there was like a chunk somewhere near the end that I felt like finally picked up, and I was like, oh yeah, this is now now I'm going, and then and then it was over. I just feel like my experience was very similar. You know, as with Hardy Boys. Um, and with this book, they're both ones that, for me, I read the revised versions that took out some of the problematic stuff. Uh, I imagine if I had read the original version of this from The Sound of Things, the the uh, treatment of the Chinese characters would have torpedoed most of the goodwill I had for the book. Or taking the book from where it is now, which is like sort of like a little bit dull, but relatively inoffensive, and, and made it dull and sometimes very offensive. So yeah, I would say revised version that I read, two peaches. Yeah, I, I do feel a little bad. Like I'm maybe revisiting these books that I know that I really loved as a kid, and now I'm just like, eh. But I I think there have been some that I still. Yeah. Well, that's part of the exercise of this podcast, right? Where we're not only introducing each other to these things, but we're also revisiting them ourselves in some cases for the first time in decades. Right, so I don't like the idea that I'm like killing the magic for myself, though. Mm. Do you feel like you've killed the magic of the cricket in Times Square? Yeah, but maybe there's now just room for more magic. I'm looking at my else. pile. I'm looking at my pile of books that we still have to go, and I feel like there's some magic there. So I'm yeah. I'm excited. But uh, but what's coming next is not a book. It's our episode ten special. What are we doing? Brother? Yeah, because we, we do specials every five episodes. It's a thing that we've done every fifth episode so far. Uh, so last time we watched some movie adaptations of things that we had read. Uh, this time we are watching something, but it's not adaptations of anything that we've read since. Uh, and technically, not even adaptation of a book at all, but it's kind of about reading the uh, children's television workshop mystery series Ghostwriter. Which I... Only vaguely knew existed and didn't watch. Oh, Ghost Rider was my jam so much that's, as a kid. It's a Brandon pick. Yep. It's a mystery. <laughs> that's what I do. I do two things. I do sci-fi and I do mysteries. And sometimes they're both things. Does that mean, is that, does that make my thing like anthropomorphic? Talking animals, yes. Animal, talking animals, yeah. Well, you haven't really even had that like anthropomorphic animals, just talking No, animals. I haven't. It's just talking. Talking animals and survival stories. Like they're anthropomorphized in a certain way because they talk about things and have like human-esque feelings. But uh, anyhow. Um, Yeah. Talking animals, post-up, or survival. Yeah. Yeah. So. uh, I make a lot of sense. We have. We have types. But yeah, we're going to watch the first arc of Ghost Rider uh, called A Ghost Story. It's, I think, five episodes long. because it was it was a weird, somewhat serialized TV series at the time, which was one of the reasons that I thought it was super cool. And while it's not an adaptation of a book, it is a show that is produced uh, in part to encourage reading and writing. But does it have a jaunty theme song where it sings about pieces of eight? The theme song's not jaunty. How would I describe the theme song? I think the theme song is basically what you would expect from an early 90s 
public television's created uh, like like idea of hip urban music that the kids are into. Oh dear. Because like it's mostly like it's basically just like a singer saying ghostwriter over and over again, but occasionally Ghost some writer. other person will be like word. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. It's I, I think it'll be fun. I watched a lot of PBS when I was a kid. I did too, but I just missed that one. Maybe it was later than I was. Because I watched a lot of Mr. Rogers and whatever that math one that we were talking about the other day. Uh, Square math, One. MathNet. MathNet was Net. part of Square One. Right. Square One was like a math variety show. Which is a pretty great idea. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. And transcripts were generated by Otter.ai. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on Twitter at dog8mybookpod and on Instagram at mydog8mybookreport or by emailing us at dog8mybookreport at gmail. We'd be really excited to know what books you loved growing up and if you've heard of the phrase, you can't get there from here. Oh, and actually I would love to, if, if anybody has read the sequels to this book, I would love to know what they are like. There are so many sequels. I... It would seem that, that I guess probably Tucker and Harry do go visit Chester. Yeah, I assume I assume it's just traveling to different places. So the back of the book says the next book is called Tucker's Countryside, so I think mm, that yeah. they go to the country. Maybe. Maybe it's like Boxcar Children, which we might eventually read, where the first book <laughs> is a thing, and then all of the subsequent books are mysteries. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Word. <laughs>